0: Welcome to the Tolenstone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Dr. Gregory Aldrete, a um, longtime professor at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He's written a series of books on ancient history and has more in the process now. He's also presented uh, quite a few great courses for the teaching company on topics as diverse as great blunders of military history and ancient Roman the movies. Uh, Dr. Aldrete, welcome to the program.
1: Uh, happy to be here this morning.
0: Oh, well, likewise. So, I want us to talk today about the topic of your first book, Gestures and Acclamations in Ancient Rome, which discusses how Roman orders reached their audiences and how, in turn, those audiences responded. So, just to begin with first principles, why was rhetoric so vital, so important in ancient Rome?
1: Well, I mean, let's say you were a member of Rome's ruling elite, um, especially during the late Republic and early Empire. Your life was all about public competition. So you're constantly uh, vying with your peers and rivals for status and prestige. And in this battle, the ability to be a good public speaker was a huge advantage. Um, Urban life at Rome revolved around, uh, it seems like an almost uh, never-ending series of public spectacles and rituals and performances. And at each one of those events, speech-making had a central role. And, and there was a whole range of things that went on at Rome. So, this would include not only um, meetings of the Senate, public assemblies, uh, campaigning for political office, but also stuff like entertainment events, um, gladiator combats, beast hunts, chariot races in the circus, theatrical performances. Uh, you also have court trials, funerals, triumphs, religious ceremonies, and festivals. And speechifying was part of every one of those things. So, since oratory, The art of speaking before an audience was at the center of those events. Oratory was at the heart of politics and of urban life. And by the way, it's important to note that for um, a lot of those, let's say, potential oratorical situations, the target audience was the general Roman public. So things like um, law cases, uh, which I'll be talking about a bit Uh, They were not tried within the confines of a courthouse as they they might be today, but instead they would be staged in public spaces, such as the forum or among the nearby colonnades. And huge crowds would gather to watch and, crucially, be entertained by those trials. So rhetoric just suffuses everything at Rome. It's it's enormously important in all kinds of contexts in ancient Roman life.
0: Well, yes, it's more where rhetoric was not important is the better question, I guess. It's just uh, right ubiquitous. Um, And so I guess, obviously, um, having good technique is critically important. Is This as much entertainment as anything else you said in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, how much do we know? Obviously, as classicists, we read these things on the page. We see, you know, the Greek or Latin text. We read them out. And it's easy to lose that these are performative in so many ways. And so I would ask, um, how much we know about rhetorical practice, about the the delivery of these speeches, and what kind of sources do we have um, on the the mechanical side of rhetoric?
1: Yeah, well, there's certainly all kinds of things that are gaps in our knowledge about the ancient world. But fortunately, this is one area Mm -hmm. of ancient Roman life that we actually have quite a lot of information about. So not only do we have a number of um, famous speeches in the writings of ancient historians, We have transcripts of a number of those speeches. And in addition, and what's particularly of interest to me, are there's a number of kind of practical manuals of rhetoric, how-to books, detailing how to be a good public speaker that were written by some of the most renowned orators themselves. And probably the most uh, important of these are three books on oratory written by Marcus Tullius Cicero, um, these are the De Oratore, the Orator, and another one called the Brutus. And Cicero is really our almost our prime example of how important oratory was and could be in ancient Rome. And if you look at his own life, you, you see this illustrated just very plainly. So Cicero, just to give a little background, he quite honestly was kind of a mediocre general. Um, he had no <laughs> distinguished ancestors. He came from a family of fairly modest economic means, and he often struck others as being a bit vain and self-centered. But despite all of that, he had an extremely long and successful political career. Um, Eventually, he rises to the very highest elected office in the Roman government, the consulship. And he's able to do this because, despite all his failings, he has one very special talent, And that's an extraordinary ability to get up in front of crowds and persuade them of what he wanted them to believe. In fact, he's usually regarded as the greatest public speaker of all time. And Rome had no, um, as you know, class of professional lawyers. Uh, Instead, politicians who are good public speakers would be asked to deliver speeches uh, either on behalf of, let's say, the prosecution or the defense in a law case. And the most effective of these so-called lawyers could themselves become celebrities. And this, of course, was Cicero's route to fame. So he gained prominence and renown in the law courts of Rome by exploiting this one real talent that he had, his ability to persuade audiences. And his rhetorical handbooks are enormously useful. I mean, they lay out um, the training and education for orators, They give practical tips and advice on public speaking, and this includes all the different stages of speech writing. So it's the sort of mental preparation, how to compose them, um, how to memorize them, because typically they would deliver these things without notes, so you'd have to memorize sometimes a speech that was an hour, hour and a half long, Mm -hmm. um, how to deliver the speech. They really give you an entire philosophy uh, concerning uh, the Roman order and his role in society. And they also have a wealth of examples um, drawn from both previous history and Cicero's own extensive experiences. Oh, and one other source that's uh, really important to understanding Roman oratory is this massive 12-volume work on the subject written about 80 years later by Quintilian. Uh, Quintilian was sort of the um, ancient equivalent of a professor of rhetoric. So I would say together it's those handbooks of Cicero and Quintilian's work, which are our main sources for how to be a good public speaker.
0: Hmm. Yes, yeah, so more than you might imagine exists on these the technical side of oratory. Hmm. And um, yeah, I remember reading a tiny fraction of the Institutes of Oratory once, Quintilian's <laughs> work, and just being astonished by how much there was. Um, He's detailed. And He's on. very
1: detailed. Um,
0: he is extremely, you can tell he's a professor. You know, he's someone who's mm-hmm. like, now the next thing to do. Um, and so obviously someone like a Cicero has natural gifts that most speakers don't. You know, he has it, whatever the it factor is for an orator. But he's also very carefully trained. You know, that there's a long education mm-hmm. behind his technique. And so, um, you know, what goes into the making of a Cicero or any Roman orator? What, what is the education process for a Roman youth who wants to become the next Cicero?
1: Well, really, the main purpose of upper-class Roman education and for boys was to prepare young men for this public life that we've been talking about. And because of that central place that oratory held in that life, uh, the main goal of education is to try and produce an effective public speaker. So in terms of education, Roman boys would study with a whole succession, one after the other as they got older, of different teachers. Um, learning kind of ever more sophisticated material. So, you know, you start off with grammar and literacy and that sort of stuff, but then you'd move on to studying Roman literature. And one aspect of that, which was essential to their later focus on oratory, was when they would learn literature, a lot of what they would do would be to memorize and then recite very long passages. And that's an essential skill to later being a good orator. And finally, they would get to the sort of crowning phase of their education, the study of rhetoric. Um, Their initial lessons in rhetoric would involve these little um, exercises they would do, where they would imagine themselves in the place of a famous uh, mythological or historical figure at some crucial episode in his or her life, and then kind of write the speech that supposedly they might have given on that occasion. So um, a lot of these were about uh, the Trojan War. Imagine you're Achilles uh, debating whether to you know withdraw from the battle or participate. What's a speech you might have given that kind of thing. And eventually they would move on to compose essays on historical themes drawn from actual Roman history or problems and there would be a lot of emphasis on their uh, learning effective um, delivery techniques, so the kinds of stuff that uh, Cicero and Quintilian spend a lot of time outlining.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember reading a few of these uh, later stage exercises and they're they're controversial I think. Yes, um, yes. which are you know often w- wonderfully contrived, you know these bat- bizarre <laughs> cases, you know, where like, you know, a weapons being tried for murder and you know <laughs> um, yeah, just wonderful stuff. Um sorry, there's a very careful process. Like I said, almost like a finishing school that every Roman gentleman's expected to go through. Um but, uh, of course, not everyone becomes Cicero. Only a few you know, have that, that it factor, whatever it is. And so what separates um, a bad orator from a good one? You know, What are the aspects that made, for example, Cicero stand out from the pack when he was rising up um, you know, in Roman politics?
1: Well, I mean, Cicero has a lot of very specific things that make him a good orator. But in a way, I almost like to sometimes step back from the specifics and look at the underlying assumption that really lays underneath a lot of Cicero's um, kind of thought about oratory. And I think at the core of Cicero's approach uh, to persuasion is one fundamental concept. And this is the belief that people, uh, especially the Roman public, are primarily ruled by emotions. So according to the strategy, if you can stir up the emotions of an audience, Then all sorts of elements that usually you would think would be important, and this might include stuff like um, the facts in a law case, evidence, even the truth, (laughs) suddenly matter much less. And here I like to quote Cicero's own words. So in one of his rhetorical handbooks, he says, to sway the audience's emotions is victory. For among all things, it's the single most important in winning verdicts. And he's talking there about law cases, but this applies to all forms of of public speaking. And Cicero would employ all kinds of strategies to achieve that end. So a lot of the things Cicero advocates are really aimed at stirring up the emotions of the audience. Um, And I mean, there's dozens of these. Uh, One that I I like particularly is where he talks about uh, the use of props and visual aids. So Cicero says that uh, an orator is like an actor in this regard. And just like an actor, he has to prepare the stage that he's going to give a speech from and furnish it with the necessary props. So, uh, for example, prior to one of his very famous speeches, which he gave to the people in the Roman Forum, Cicero arranged beforehand for a new statue of the god Jupiter to be set up nearby. And then during the speech, he would allude to this statue, and he would ask, almost challenge the crowd, you know... How can you guys sit there and not take action when right under the very eyes of the god? And so just as a um, (laughs) modern speaker might use, let's say, PowerPoint to provide illustrations to his talk, Cicero ensured that he would have a visual aid available to supplement his words. And we see this all the time in in court cases. So um, Cicero and Quintilian both talk a lot about how uh, orders who were prosecuting violent crimes would always bring into the court and prominently display objects related to the crime. So they might bring in um, swords encrusted with blood, bits of bone <laughs> taken from the wounds, and of course, the bloodstained clothing of the victims. So all of these are calculated to appeal to the emotions, the sympathy of the jury. And some orders would even take this a step further and they would commission paintings to be made that would depict the accused person committing the crime in graphic detail. And Quintilian says, you know, this sometimes is taking a little bit too far. It's it's kind of morally questionable, but hey, it works. Because then you put this vivid, literal image into the jury's mind of the guy committing the crime. And so you think, well, he did it. And Cicero sometimes even extends this to um, using human beings as sort of living props So he does this several times, but I think my favorite is one time he's uh, defending a guy who uh, has a newborn baby. And so Cicero delivers the speech uh, defending this man while literally cradling the infant in his arms. So you can kind of imagine Cicero going like, ooh, cute little baby. Look how cute this baby is. How could you possibly (laughs) leave him without a father to take care of him? And, And Cicero's comment at the end of this is that You know, the Roman forum was filled with sobs and tears. So it it worked. Appeal to emotion really works. Um, That's just a couple of the techniques that Cicero employed.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I actually never heard those anecdotes. Um, And that, uh, boy, how much better our modern court cases would be if we had, you know, these, you know, wonderful dioramas of what what, what, the prosecutor said was going on, you know, human props. Um, Though I think that, you know, some of these um, perhaps uh, underhanded methods um get at the fact that oratory though obviously so central to roman life um was at least in some expressions considered somewhat disreputable at least as it was practiced by you know uh, the greeks or whatever else by non-romans you know they were especially in the early days of republican rome or early middle republic um these occasional frenzies of prosecution against orators. they're expelled from rome a couple times early on and this you know kind of dies out by the late republic by cicero's day um but there is always this um sense that oratory has to be done the right way. And there's always complaints among practitioners that oratory is not being done well. Um, you know, it's being corrupt, it's been vitiated somehow. And so I guess I wanted you maybe to address this this kind of uh, conundrum, where oratory is at once absolutely pivotal to Roman life, but at the same time has this, uh, I don't know, a raffish air, an air of someone being re- disreputable, um, not quite one of the learned sciences.
1: Yeah. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, you put your finger on one of the big dilemmas facing orators. And there's always that tension between things that are effective and things that are seen as morally questionable. And I think a big source of that anxiety um, comes from the fact that there was another highly visible group at Rome, other than politicians and lawyers, who were using a lot of these exact same rhetorical techniques. And that other group is actors and mimes and mm-hmm. pantomime artists who would appear in theatrical presentations. So these were hugely popular. Uh, supposedly, pantomime was the most popular form of entertainment among the urban plebs. Mm-hmm. But few groups in Roman society were more um, looked down on or maligned than the you know, supposedly immoral, debased, and degenerate performers of the stage. And so any similarities that that group might share with members of the Roman elite would have made the latter very, very uncomfortable. So just as you say, Roman orders were were kind of um, caught on the horns of a tricky dilemma. On the one hand, there's this desire to deliver a speech in the most persuasive manner possible. I mean, the the rewards for that are enormous. But on the other hand, is the necessity to at least give the appearance of maintaining the kind of uh, decorum and restraint expected of their high social status so the orator had to find that line you know to what degree does he engage in theatricality and make his speech more dramatic and effective and audience appealing or how much should he try to maintain that kind of aristocratic dignity and reserve and and when you read the oratorical handbooks of cicero and quintilian they they really vividly encapsulate this anxiety and and honestly they have I would say almost a schizophrenic attitude towards actors. (laughs) So you'll read those, and in some places, they'll just lavish praise on actors. And they'll explicitly say, orders can learn a lot by studying actors and what they do, and by imitating certain things they do. But then you turn the page, and maybe a page or two pages later... They'll vigorously condemn actors. They'll have this screed saying they're the worst people, and there is absolutely nothing uh, that they share in common with orders. So they directly contradict themselves just back and forth. Um, By the way, Mm -hmm. Cicero, I should mention, was friends with several of the most famous actors of his time, and he admitted that he studied their techniques in order to improve his delivery. So yeah, it's, it's a tricky line that orders had to tread. And as you say, rival orders are always accusing one another of engaging in shameful or low practices.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, you know I, I think of like Quintilian saying that a good order is what a, a good man skilled in speaking right and that, that's his famous tag maybe mm-hmm. that, that oratory has to flow somehow from the character of the speaker but everyone knows it's really about technique when it comes down to it that it's about who's yeah. the best at kind of pulling at the heartstrings or whatever else it might be and then it's all these agonized debates about you know whether you know attic or asiatic style you know or x or y or z technique once mm-hmm. uh, they all arise but um You know, thinking more about the actual uh, scenarios in which they're performing these, you know, tricky arts. Um, So you mentioned before how really the audience can often be the entire Roman public, at least notionally. I I mean, how large an audience are we talking um, for someone like Cicero, you know, at a, a major court case? How many people might be watching him and hearing and listening?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, before I get to size, that point you just made is is incredibly correct. So mm-hmm. um, orders were just constantly kind of pretending like this just came naturally to them. And that's what made it OK. Mm-hmm. That's why it was mm-hmm. an aristocratic thing. But really, it's hours and hours of crafted technique. So it's pretending it's one way when it's actually not. Um, in terms of mm-hmm. crowds, you know, the potentially crowds it could be very large. Um, the Roman Forum, which is the site of many famous speeches by Cicero and other people, uh, was a big space—maybe 100, 120 yards long, uh, 60, 80 yards wide—and it could hold, you know, 10,000, maybe 15,000 spectators if you include people sitting in all the, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the basilicas alongside. So that's a huge crowd. And in entertainment venues like the Colosseum, the Flavian Amphitheater, or Circus Maximus, where, uh, yes, politicians and emperors, we know, interacted with crowds verbally, you could have tens of thousands of people. And and this, by the way, is, is the very aspect of ancient oratory that first got me deeply interested in the topic. So... Um, The majority of my scholarship is really always investigations into practical aspects of life in the ancient world. I like to try and figure out how things actually worked. And way back, you know, three, four decades ago when I was in grad school, uh, I was studying ancient rhetoric just a little bit. And I kept reading these accounts of famous orators like Cicero giving these speeches in front of huge crowds of tens of thousands of people. And I said, you know, I got to wondering how did that work? Just how did that actually work in an era before any artificial means of voice amplification, like microphones Mm -hmm. or loudspeakers? And it turns out that at least a little part of the answer is that Roman orators employed a system of sign language when they spoke. And this helped because it's actually possible, this has been tested, to see a gesture at a farther distance than you can hear a voice. And that especially applies in a noisy or windy outdoor setting, which is, after all, where most of these speeches took place. So uh, my dissertation ended up stemming from this. My dissertation became my first book. And in that, I basically tried to figure out some of this system of oratorical gestures.
0: Hmm. Honestly, I always wondered myself about, you read about, say, Alexander or Caesar addressing, you know, an enormous army, <laughs> and you're thinking, you know, what's the guy in the back row getting out of all this? You yeah. know, just sees, you know, the the guy gesticulating. But, of course, gesticulation itself, as you're saying, is itself a sort of sign language. So, just to ask, you know, the big question that you addressed in your dissertation and then your book, um, how did Roman orders use gestures as they spoke? Uh, in in a general yeah, and terms, I'll mean, the more specifics, yeah. To that yeah. question
1: about the guy in the back of the crowd, as usual, Monty Python gets it exactly right in that scene <laughs> in Life of Brian
0: where oh, you right, have yes. the
1: Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is speaking mm-hmm. way off in the distance. <laughs> but in the back, you have the people saying, you know, oh, what did he say? Blessed are the cheesemakers, you know? And, and that <laughs> kind of right, thing yeah. is exactly what went on. So that that's absolutely the situation. And we, in fact, have mm-hmm. some sources uh, featuring uh, Julius Caesar once, and in our time, I think Pompey, giving speeches where they talk about how people on the fringe of the crowd misunderstood what they heard, because you just can't hear that very well. <laughs> But back to gesture, um, the key thing about the Roman uh, gestural sign language is that unlike the modern sign language, in which uh, motions function as direct substitutes for words, mostly Roman orators use gestures to add an emotional gloss to their speech. So in other words, the gesture that a Roman orator made told you how you were supposed to feel in response to the words he was speaking. So again, it's that emphasis on emotion here. And furthermore, the Romans believed that just witnessing, if you saw certain gestures, it would cause you to experience a specific emotion. So if an order knew what gesture to make, he could literally manipulate his audience's feelings. And, and this might seem a little weird. You might say, well, no, just because someone makes a gesture, it's not going to make me feel something. But think just uh, sort of as an analogy of the effect that music can have on your emotions. So today, if you're watching a movie, uh, let's say it's a horror movie, you know the filmmakers will, in certain scenes, use uh, you know kind of strident, uh, sharp, jarring chords which will make you feel tense. Or if it's a tragic scene, they'll use strings to kind of make you feel sad. And Cicero him, knew about this kind of thing with music, and he used this analogy in explaining gestures. So Cicero actually says in one of his handbooks that in the same way that we all know certain musical tones or chords make you feel you know, sad, happy, tense, whatever, certain postures of the body or hand motions will make you feel certain emotions. And Cicero says the human body is like a lyre, a a musical instrument, and the orator Mm -hmm. has to learn to play his own body to arouse the emotions of his audience. So for orators like Cicero, um, gestures are a component of what's one of the most important aspects of oratory, and that's delivery. Um, Far too often, we read Cicero and we think about them as just text on a page. I mean, this is what happens when you're a philologist and you Mm -hmm. focus so much on the language. But these were live speeches, given live. And Cicero all the time says, you know, a poor speech with great delivery is going to be more effective than a brilliant speech with bad delivery. And he repeats, and every other Roman author likes to repeat this story about Demosthenes. Uh, Demosthenes was regarded as the greatest of the Greek orders. And one day a guy comes up to Demosthenes, an admiring fan, and says, you know, Demosthenes, give me some tips. Tell me, what are the three most important aspects of effective public speaking? And to this, Demosthenes said, the three most important aspects of public speaking are, one, delivery, two, delivery, and three, delivery. (laughs) So, I mean, they just hammer this notion about what really matters is how you deliver that speech. And when talking about the use of gesture specifically, uh, Quintilian has a really nice quote, which I pulled, so I want to read this one. So Quintilian says, the hands may almost be said to speak. Do we not use them to demand, promise, summon, dismiss, threaten, supplicate, express aversion and fear, question or deny? Do we not use them to indicate joy, sorrow, hesitation, confession, penitence, and to measure quantity, number, and time. So gestures were an integral part of good oratory to the Romans.
0: Wow, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I suppose in our, our own culture, we kind of overlook all of these um, culturally specific languages, but music in itself is, of course, a culturally, specific, a culturally specific language that we see in movies. You know, this thing that, like you said, cues us how to feel and think. And I suppose that, right, the hands being so articulate as anyone we think of modern Italian almost sometimes as having yes. retaining some of this, um, but our own, you know, I guess slack, slack-limbed English can some, somehow loses that. Um, so thinking about how this actually operated in practice, um, I guess, how are you able to figure out in your research um, what they're actually doing? You know, are they explicit in text or are you to kind of extrapolate from other sources?
1: Well, that was the challenge for my dissertation. And I really had two sources of information. So first, of course, are those oratorical handbooks, mostly by Cicero and Quintilian. And they Mm -hmm. do describe some of the gestures used by orators and their meanings. Um, Quintilian in particular, as you know when you've read him a bit, Mm -hmm. uh, Quintilian has this lengthy discussion. I mean, it's almost 40, 50 pages in the Loeb edition of (laughs) detailed descriptions of gestures. So that was very helpful to me in my research. A big problem with those handbooks, however, is that, quite honestly, their verbal descriptions of physical gestures are often unclear or even just downright confusing. So there's pages <laughs> where you know Quintilian will describe, and then you put the third finger bent slightly by the fourth <laughs> finger by something else, and you just don't know what he's talking about. So this is where my second type of evidence came in, and that was ancient art. So in a whole variety of media, uh, ranging from statues to coins, we have contemporary visual depictions of Roman politicians, uh, actors, and orators making various hand and body gestures. So a lot of what I tried to do uh, was to match up those two sources, to match the verbal descriptions from the rhetorical handbooks with actual examples that we could look at in art.
0: Huh, that's fascinating, you know. I, one of my hobbies is I, I'm a very small scale collector of Roman coins, and I remember mm-hmm. I've seen a few sesterti. They have yeah. these wonderful um, ad locutio reliefs in the back yes, that'll have them. you know usually <laughs> the emperor. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, kind of a little uh, scaffold or whatever, you know, addressing you know usually the mm-hmm. soldiers, the Roman people, and uh, so right. I guess that putting those two into together image and text um, might have been, must have been a wonderfully fruitful fusion. So I think for many of us, when we think of how Roman Oratory must have looked, we think of HBO's Rome, where they have the newsreader, you know, kind of this um, portly gentleman who, you know, has these very florid gestures as he reads the news of the day, you know, and kind of functions as the, the Greek chorus almost in, the, in, in those, those episodes. But um, from your research, from both image and text, um, what do we know about this, these specific gestures that were being employed in Roman speeches?
1: Yeah, uh, those ad coins you mentioned, that was one of the key sources in, in mm-hmm. my dissertation, my book. So I, I talked about a lot of those. But in terms of, of what some of these gestures were, uh, let me give you an example of what this might have looked like a little bit in a speech. So um, mm-hmm. in, in one part of his gesture discussion, Quintilian takes a line from one of Cicero's actual speeches and very, very helpfully Indicates exactly where Cicero would have used a gesture uh, in that line, hmm. and it's the um, it's the opening line of the Pro Ligario. So let me kind of just like perform that line for you in Latin uh, using some oh, actual sure. Roman oratorical gestures. So here we go: Noam cremen, gaii Kaiser, et ante hanc diem non auditum propinquus meus ad te. Quintus Tubro de Tullet. (laughs) So uh, a kind of rough translation would be something like, um, of a new crime, Gaius Caesar, and one that before today had never been heard of, my relative Quintus Tubro has accused you. And in terms of the gestures, so like the one where I kind of push my hands to the left like that, um, Mm -hmm. that gesture was thought by the Romans to convey the emotion of aversion so you can kind of see that, right? You're almost like sort of pushing something away you don't like. So if you're talking about something that disgusts you or that's bad, you, you'll do that one. Um, when I slapped my thigh, it indicated anger. When I clenched my fist and pressed against my chest, the emotion that that meant, is meant to convey is grief. So a lot of these are quite natural, right? I mean, you can almost guess what those emotions are meant to be just by the gesture. Now, a lot of the Roman gestures are more... Um, Sort of arbitrary or a little not as obvious in their meaning. So, one of my favorite, I think one of the most graceful ones, is, is that one I did where the hand starts like this, you curl the fingers in sequence, and then open them outward like that. So, hmm. uh, this one's not quite as obvious, but you can maybe guess it. My students have guessed it sometimes. What do you think this is? What emotion is being conveyed? This is the touchy feely part here of our discussion. Hmm. So, any I ideas? Would almost...
0: Yeah, I'm um, I kind of at a loss being, again, that, that, that slack-limbed English is kind of – maybe, like, a, I don't know, you're you're being expansive. You're kind of inviting in the audience maybe. I'm not –
1: Yeah, okay. You're close. This is meant to be wonder. So something kind of ah, like, okay. makes you feel wonder or amazement. That's the gesture. So oh, okay. you kind of almost get that, right? Yeah,
0: so, yeah. So I, the I can gestures very much I are interesting. Work. Yeah. Huh. yeah, yeah that's, that's um, and you'd ask
1: – you had asked about the, um, the the Herald in HBO's Rome, so I don't want to forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the whole, by the way, many of the gestures he uses are actual ones attested by Cicero Quintilian. Some are a little uh, not, but but most of them actually are. And huh. When I was watching the uh, commentaries on that show created by some of the makers of the show, uh, there's a line where somebody mentions that for that, they consulted a book on gestures by a Roman historian. And since I wrote the book that (laughs) illustrates those gestures, I'm guessing it probably means they might've looked at my book for that one, though I can't, they didn't name me, but, uh, I figured it must've been, you know, well,
0: that's fun. Um, yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And I guess, um, you know, again, I you know people of us, those of us who, again, have been to Italy and kind of seen this in action to some degree. It's much more, much less stylized, of course. But again, it, it's supposed to be intuitive. It's kind of, it, like you said, it kind of illustrates and counterpoints what you're saying, you know, at the same time. Usually a mile a minute if it's in Italian. Um, but, how uh, oh, fascinating. And so thinking about... Actually, so the Roman on crowd's the uh, watching Italian thing,
1: oh, go ahead. Um, you mentioned uh-huh. like modern Italian people are far more gesticulate even today than other mm-hmm. countries, for example. Um, and in the 19th century, there was a, a classicist who actually went to Naples and tried to look at then contemporary Italian gestures in the street and link them up to the descriptions in Quintilian to try and say <laughs> there was a continuity from you know 2,000 years of ancient Rome to modern Naples in terms of really? Italian gesticulation. And I don't think it actually works, but uh, it, it shows that you know that they were sort of seeing this. And one of my Mm -hmm. frustrations with movies, and this is just an aside, is that they tend to cast English actors as upper-class Romans, and the English Mm -hmm. are some of the least gesticulate people on the surface of the (laughs) earth today. So I feel like they always leave out that nice aspect of Roman uh, life that uh, really was part of it. And HBO Rome at least tried to put that back in, so that's good.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think so often our, our idea, our mental image of ancient Rome is, you know, either kind of these you know stiff marble statues you know static and moving monumental or right kind of these dramatizations which are often very stylized even shakespearean sometimes and uh right it kind of leaves the color and the, you know the sheer vividness of roman life um, off screen sometimes um but anyway um you know thinking about the effect of all of these gestures and you know and all of these wonderful deliveries um you know, what do we know about the ways in which Roman crowds responded to uh, a good or a bad speech? You know, Did they clap? Did they boo? Did they hiss? You know, what are the, uh, what's their nonverbal or kind of just sonic um, uh, contribution to the dialogue between order and crowd?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- that's a big part of it too. And public orations are or were highly interactive events. So crowds Mm -hmm. would express their agreement or disapproval to the speaker uh, quite vociferously in ancient Rome. So they would indeed shout, uh, they would applaud, they would boo, they would hiss, they would jeer, they would yell abuse. Um, They would even do things like throw objects. So there's plenty of examples (laughs) of uh, crowds pelting orders with rotten fruit, um, moldy bread crusts, and of course, sometimes rocks or uh, often roof tiles, which is one of the handy urban weapons in the ancient Mm -hmm. world. And sometimes they would riot. Um, Crowds also had an entire system, formal system, of shouted chants called acclamations, which had Mm -hmm. certain well-known formulas, and which audiences could employ to make uh, known their reactions or to make requests. So when we think of a Roman oration, it, it was a lively event. And that's another reason why they came to be viewed as, as a form of public entertainment. And I suspect that um, one of the things that made Cicero such a good orator, uh, talking about well, why did he stand out, is that he was probably quite good mm. at dealing with hecklers. Uh, we certainly know from his speeches that he uh, had no hesitation whatsoever about employing personal invective and kind of ruthlessly mocking his opponents and doing so on the spur of the moment. So there's a couple examples where we know he would kind of make jokes at people's expense that clearly just occurred to him right at the moment or where he's even using elements Mm -hmm. of the environment. So I think being sort of light on his feet, quick thinking and responding to these kind of spontaneous things that would happen was another aspect of why Cicero was so effective.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so the, the things can really go south pretty quickly in this sort of, you know, very animated environment where people have, you know, roof tiles on hand, you know, or dung to throw, whatever else. Yeah. And, and so, I, I guess, um, you know, do you have any, any, any examples, really, of it as a truly catastrophic speech, you know, where the order either, you know, just incited the crowd to violence, or they just really hated him for whatever reason, and things fell apart?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, that happened a lot. Um, we have quite a few examples of orders uh, literally having to flee for their lives. And just as there were good orders we've been talking about, there's bad ones too. Um, mm. if, if, if we just stick with gestures, we've kind of been focusing on gesture. Uh, let me use that as an example of some bad examples of gesture. Because while properly uh, used gestures could obviously enhance the power of a speech, there's also a big danger that gesticulating too much or in an undignified manner would undercut the power of the speech, uh, make Hmm. the order look silly and and destroy the effectiveness of the whole thing. So, for example, uh, there was was one hoarder who obviously was just in this habit of kind of violently flailing his arms around when he spoke. (laughs) And this caused people to say that whenever he gave a speech, it always looked like he was being attacked by a cloud of flies. You know, this was kind of going (laughs) like this. And uh, another guy said the same order that anytime he watched him give a speech, he felt like he was watching a man trying to balance in a wave-tossed boat. So that's not good. (laughs) Uh, My favorite example, though, uh, maybe the most embarrassing one for an order, too, was the case of an order named uh, Sextus Tidius. And apparently, this guy would habitually sway from side to side. Whenever he was giving a speech, but he would do it in this kind of supple, languid way. And this resulted in a popular dance of the time being named the (laughs) Tidious. So people would do the Tidious in imitation of this order who had this bad body language when giving speeches. So too much gesturing could definitely get you in trouble, but not using gestures would cause your audience to get bored. And this was a big problem also. So um, there's another quote I pulled that I'll read you this one. This is Cicero uh, critiquing another order named Marcus Calidus. And what Cicero Mm -hmm. says is, you, Marcus Calidus, there was no trace of agitation in you, neither of mind nor of body. Did you once smite your brow? Did you slap your thigh or at least stamp your foot? No. In fact, so far from touching my feelings, I could scarce refrain from going to sleep on the spot. So if you don't gesticulate, it's bad as well. And in another place, Cicero says, uh, if you're a good orator, by the end of your speech, your toga should be all disheveled because you've been doing all these gestures, and you should be soaked in sweat. So that's a sign of you've put in the right effort, that you are using this kind of body language. And Cicero would praise also orators who do a good job, um, there's a nice example where he says to one guy, uh, your wagging a finger made me tremble with emotion. So <laughs> there's a couple examples uh, of both good and bad in terms of how to use body language.
0: Those are wonderful. Uh, doing the tedious. Boy, I, I know yeah. how I've made it this far in my life without knowing that little, that little tidbit about ancient Rome. Um and like you said, that it, it, it's a fine balance to strike between being ridiculous and being just too stiff, you know, being the, the mm-hmm. dead, the limp fish. And, um, you know, I, like you were said earlier, thinking about how this has this interface with the world of theater, you know, where, where pantomime is so popular. And pantomime is, of course, silent. They're communicating mm-hmm. with purely gestures. And if everyone's going, you know, from the pantomime theater to the forum and they have these expectations about why, you know, about the eloquence of gesture, then you, know, you better hit your, your tone just right or else you're going to mm-hmm. be seen as a bad orator. Delivery, 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 delivery. Yep. Um, well, fascinating stuff. And I guess, you know, thinking about bringing it to the present day, I noticed that myself a couple of times when I was talking, I did this without really thinking about it. And that got me thinking a bit about how gestures are used today, um, of course, even by us limp Americans. Um, you know, what parallels do we see in, in your experience for modern public figures using either ancient, faux ancient, or just sort of gestures in general in their addresses?
1: Yeah, the the modern parallels are interesting. Just on the question of sort of absorbing this yourself, I think all these decades of saying ancient gestures have made me gesticulate mm-hmm. a lot. And I really constantly <laughs> have to think to restrain myself because I want to be doing all oh, wow. this stuff. Um, so I'm always trying to tone it down. But <laughs> anyway. Um oh, right. yeah, I mean if, if you look at gesture in ancient Rome and then compare it to modern notions of gesticulation, it, it's a really interesting history because all the way up to about the 19th century, people were intensely interested in delivery and this question of body gesture. So if you look at um, people writing about rhetoric in the 1700s or the 1800s or the Renaissance, they're all really into this. And then as we hit the early 20th century, it kind of stops. And a lot of the reason is that's the exact same time that we get those artificial means of voice amplification. And remember, Mm -hmm. the very earliest um, sort of microphones weren't, you know, little tiny mics. They were these huge stands, and the order would be hidden, his entire body, by the voice amplification machinery. So I think about 100 years ago, all of a sudden that became less important because you could no longer see the order, and the emphasis was on this projection of his voice. But then as we get into the mid-20th century, when all that starts shrinking, and you start to get TV, and you get people watching this... All of a sudden, body language becomes really important again, and now we tend to look at that. Uh, And a real turning point was uh, the the Nixon debates, where he's sweating visibly, and everybody commented on this, because you could now see close up the order. But if we look at the basic rules for effective oratory then and now, they're really similar. I mean, all the same kind of stuff that you read about in Cicero apply to what we judge as good public speaking today. So the best public speakers of the past and today tend to follow those rules laid out in the ancient rhetorical handbooks very, very closely. Um, You know, just people we tend to regard as good orders commonly use a lot of gestures. Uh, Effective speakers are those who are able to arouse the emotions of a crowd. And delivery remains hugely important. Now, that may actually not be always a good thing. Um, you know, we all know that uh, a speech or a professor, uh, if he has an exciting uh, inspired delivery, you're going to be more entertained by that and like it better, even if the content isn't so great, um, as opposed to a speech that might have excellent content given in a really dull and boring manner. And maybe mm-hmm. even more unfortunate is that the practitioners of outstanding delivery can use those skills for very different moral purposes. So, you know, from, from the last 500, years, think for example of two figures like Martin Luther King and Adolf Hitler. Both mm-hmm. those guys were highly effective orators. Both are famous for using lots of gestures, and both were absolute masters of arousing their audience's emotions. But of course, one man used those talents for good and the other used them for evil. So um, hmm. these and all the rhetorical techniques we're talking about with Cicero can be very effective in persuading audiences, but I also think this leaves us with some disturbing questions. And some of those questions are things like, are these techniques, are these tricks ethical? Um, is mm-hmm. this the kind of speech making that you really want to see from a politician? So that's, that's something that, that's a problem with all of this. But at any rate, uh, all of it does demonstrate that a lot of things that we sometimes think of as modern, of course, really are not new at all, but were, you know, fully developed uh, techniques thousands of years ago in antiquity.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. You know, it brings back to the idea that there's almost a magic in gestures, that this, mm-hmm. uh, this you know, coaxing power that they employ. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was just thinking about modern examples. You know, I, I guess you know, in American history, we always think about like a... Like a William Jennings Bryan or something, the Cross of Gold speech where, you know, mimes at the yeah. end, you know, being at a cross, everyone loses their mind, from just the sheer, yeah. you know, the physical impact of that gesture. Um, but even in a more subtle way, right, a good speaker, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, Martin Luther King or you know, Adolf Hitler or someone who's you know, not one of these immorally, uh, you know, terrifying examples um, – Right, there, there's a body language employed that we might not only half recognize unless we're looking for it. And I'm sure you see all the time because you're so conditioned to think of gesture as its mm-hmm. own kind of independent language that works alongside, you know, English or Latin or whatever it might be. But it, it's fascinating stuff. Um, so anyway, uh, Professor Aldredi, uh, fa- thank you so much um, for this fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot and uh, doing the tedious for one thing, that alone um, has made everything here. <laughs> it's a memorable um, anecdote. A wonderful yeah. boon. It it, it really is. Um, So anyway, um, to all listeners, um, Professor Aldretti has written um, some great books um, on ancient history and has some wonderful great courses. Uh, You'll find both at his website, uh, GregorySaldretti.com. And so, uh, Greg, thanks again. And to everyone, uh, thanks for listening.
1: Yep, thank you very much. This is uh, fun stuff to discuss, as you can tell, I like it. So thank you.
0: Of course, thanks again.